Before we get going into your Hockey IQ podcast episode, I want to thank our sponsor, Rapid Shot. Rapid Shot is the smart shooting lane. Uh, it's like a batting cage for hockey players. Very cool. Tracks your shot in three ways. Accuracy, shot speed, and reaction time. Uh, easy to use. Uh, actually, I used it when I played and was growing up. Very easy. Simply scan your phone in, select your settings, and start shooting. Uh, you can see your stats on the app and online. And you can check them out at rapidshot.com. Uh, great small business. I actually grew up with one of the owner's sons and have played with all the family members by now. Uh, just in local pickups here in Ohio. Very cool local business. Awesome product. I love it. I know quite a few NHLers have them in their homes. Uh, a lot of D1 programs have it at their rinks. So you have to check this out. Rapidshot.com. Check it out. Rapidshot, thank you so much for sponsoring our podcast. On the podcast this week, we bring on Travis Martell of Martell Elite Fitness out in British Columbia. Uh, really great guy. Uh, he's going to focus a lot on the off-ice stuff. We're even going to get again into skating. Uh, kind of been a theme here recently, talking about how we can become better, uh, faster skaters. So really great stuff here. Really enjoy a lot of a lot of this on active recovery. How should we be preparing our bodies? for the off seasons, during the season, uh, really great stuff. And, and we even jump into his playing career, uh, going over to Germany and seeing what that has been like for him to see the rise of German hockey. So really great episode here. Excited to bring Travis Martell. On the podcast today, we bring on Travis Martell. Travis, great to have you on. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate being here. Yeah, really excited. I'm, I'm Genuinely curious because I was absolutely terrible uh, at the off-ice component when I played, uh, much, much more cerebral player than anything. Um, and it sounded like, uh, given your your past, it's kind of what led you down in the path of, of really taking ownership and helping players understand the importance of the off-ice. So uh, let, let's start with a quick background for guys that don't know you. Kind of like yourself, though, I didn't take the off-ice too seriously until it was almost too late. But luckily, I was still able to progress my career. So I grew up uh, here in the Okanagan, uh, Kelowna, British Columbia, Canada, for those who have to Google it. Um, so we're up on the west coast of Canada, nice little remote spot. And uh, yeah, playing my minor hockey here and was fortunate enough to continue to progress through and play junior hockey. And then I was off to uh, university where I started to seriously take off-ice training um, as something that I know I needed to do. And then I, at the same time, I was studying exercise science and kind of took that program because I knew it would help uh, my on-ice development. And uh, yeah, after graduating and earning my degree in exercise science, went off and played a couple years pro uh, in the States and then went off overseas where I played uh, six years in Germany. And then every offseason, when I'd come back here to my hometown in Kelowna, I would help out young hockey players. Um, when I first started, uh, some of the dads I knew through hockey, their kids were at that perfect age. They were 13, 14 years old, wanting to start training. And um, yeah, I started working with them. And then their friends would come the next year, and then their friends, and just it slowly just started growing and growing very organically. Didn't do any advertising, just try to do really good work. And and help out these kids and give them the knowledge 
that uh, I never had at their age. And that's kind of how I guess my strength and conditioning career started. That's fascinating. So I got two things I want to dive into. First off, German hockey seems to be a hot topic. Uh, Stuart Slut, Dryset, all those guys. So, you know, what, what's it, what was it like back then or maybe some changes that you were seeing uh, during the end of your career there? Um, and then we'll, we'll circle back around and, and talk about what, what the youth need to understand and, and what they're missing. Yeah, so my first uh, kind of eye-opener experience when I got to Germany was – Oh man, these guys are good. <laughs> you know, they're, they're fast. They can all shoot. Um, yeah, I felt like it was going to be hard for me to keep up, uh, just based off their pure athleticism on the ice. And then you start to play and, um, start to understand that, okay, you know what, just because Canada has such a long history of hockey that I guess our hockey IQ was a little higher or at least where I was. And so I was able to compete just because I could have some other guys that were a little faster than myself or had a little bit more skill than myself. Uh, but as you can see with the names you mentioned with uh, Dreisaitl and uh, the guy that's in Ottawa there, they're starting to think the game equally as well as us Canadians. And their, their skill, I guess, would be not a, for everyone, but their skill's really high. Like they, they, they work on the, the, fine, the finer details of it, where I think uh, the Canadian hockey player back in the day was like, okay, I'm just going to be big and fast and just like run guys over skill kind of took a back seat. Obviously the game's changed a lot now and it's definitely more skill oriented. And uh, you can see that with uh, a lot of the Europeans playing in the NHL. Now they're uh, extremely skilled guys and uh, yeah, it, uh, it makes for exciting hockey. So I was able to experience that playing in Germany and uh, it was fun just to kind of see the, the two different styles of games. Yeah, and then in the summers, you would uh, come back and train youth players. So I'm curious, what kind of education were you doing with them? What, what do young players need to understand that they currently don't? Or just when you're starting someone off and they're just getting into to understanding the importance of off-ice training, you know, how do you make that stick? I, I know I've been to a gym and, you know, like, oh, you do the normal stuff, but then it really doesn't sink in. You don't take it to heart. <laughs> yeah, well, I, especially now the kids, like, they want instant results, right? Like social media – has uh, really made this challenging for anyone that is trying to coach where if the kids don't see results in the first five minutes, like, well, that didn't work. I'm going to do something else. And so I think the biggest thing is for them to have fun with it. So they want to come back and, and do it again and again, because as we know, it takes a lot of repetition to see improvement. Uh, it doesn't happen right away. And uh, with these, with these young kids, it's just getting them to understand that they'll see the most benefit by kind of mastering the basics. Like they, they all want to do what they see on Instagram, what they all see on the commercials. Like you see the Gatorade commercials of the, like the NHL guys, like you got Sidney Crosby and um, I think maybe Nick Nugent Hopkins in it too. And they're all doing like pretty advanced stuff. And they're like, yeah, that, that, that's good. That's really good stuff. But it only works for them because they've built their foundation. So now they can, they can really get very specific with their, with their off-ice training. So the youth kids... For myself, I just try and reinforce, like, hey, look, you know what? If we master the basics, if we do a good job with this boring stuff, you'll see a huge improvement on the ice. And the kids that understand this and stick to it, their on-ice improvement just takes off. And 
the challenge for us coaches is, okay, how do we make this boring, basic off-ice training fun for them to come back to? And that's what I try and instill with the guys I work with. And so far, I've had really good success with it. Well, that's tough. And again, it took me until way too late. You were on the late side as well, which is like understanding there's a monotony to this. It's not always going to be fun. And if you do the work, you, you finally understand that, yeah, it's not fun, but it's going to lead to results. And that's going to be more fun scoring those goals, contributing more, getting more ice time, all that. So what, what are some ways that you, you try to keep it fun and really make that go, go to heart for the guys? Just the environment. Uh, I mean, I, <laughs> I don't know if I'm particularly a fun guy, but I enjoy it so much that uh, like my, I literally like, I still train as if I'm going to play professional hockey. So um, it's something I really, really enjoy. And I just try and make it uh, an enjoyable environment. So it's not all like yelling and the seriousness of it, but it's bringing an element of like, we get to do this. Like this is something that not everyone has an opportunity to. So let's take advantage of it. And uh, yeah, I think just getting the kids to want to do the work, like sometimes they don't want to do something. So rather than trying to like shove it down their throat and like make them do something they don't want to do, they're not going to come back the next day or they'll come back, but they're not going to enjoy it. So to adjust on the fly and do something, you know, they enjoy doing to get kind of get that buy-in. Cause as you know, not every day we're super motivated. You know, some days we wake up and might not have it. And so you got to find a way to just slightly alter your plan to get them to continue to improve because improvement um, can happen in, in many, many different ways. It's not always about getting stronger or always about getting faster. Sometimes improvement comes with just having good recovery or maybe playing a games day. Like um, with our older guys, I, your band and midget age, so you're like 15, 16, and then like junior and pro guys, we play spike ball. You know, the guys come in, we get a good warm up. You see, they don't really have it. So let's get some spike ball going. And like, so from the nerdy side of it, <laughs> spike ball is a fun game, but the nerdy side, okay, we get to work on agility. So a lot of like quick change of direction. We get to work on some hand-eye coordination. You don't need as much in, in hockey because we're holding on to a stick. And, uh, but you get to work on communication, that read-react component, and uh, that conditioning. So you, you, you get a lot of positive things out of spike ball, but the athletes are doing it is like, this is just fun. I get to compete. I get to enjoy this. And so that's our day. They come back the next day. They feel better about themselves. They feel ready to go. And now we can, we can improve their power output, or now we can improve their, their speed development on, on the field. But if we try and push them to do something they don't want to do instead of doing the spike ball, then they come back the next day and we're not going to get to do what we want to do on that day. So now we've lost two days. So by just slightly adjusting, you get to continue to have forward progression. Awesome stuff there. And I'm a huge spike ball uh, nerd. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they have the national championships uh, online, so you can definitely check those out on YouTube for anyone who wants to see what competitive spike ball looks like. It's more like ping pong, which everyone thinks it's long rallies, but it's like two, three quick hits and just like missile to the moon. And you're like, uh, well, not getting that ball. Yeah. But that's a fun one. But uh, moving on here, I'm curious about how you like to go about your process. It seems like 
you're big on in injury prevention, which everyone you know doesn't want to get injured, but how do you train for injury prevention over training for performance? It's a good question. I, I truly believe that th those are the same things. If, um, if we can keep our athletes healthy, then they're going to improve their performance. So if you kind of change your focus on which one's more important, if you go performance first, well, then there's some risk of injury, right? There's always that risk reward. And we want to minimize as much of that risk as possible and have the greatest reward as possible. I don't know you can kind of compare it to investing in stocks. You can, you know, put thousands of dollars into penny stocks and if, you know, they, they might blow up and you can be a millionaire or you can just lose it all. Or you can like do due diligence, kind of think the Warren Buffett style of like, you know what, I'm going to invest in companies that are going to be around for a very, very long time. Maybe my reward tomorrow isn't as high, but I know in the next two to three years, five to seven years, I'm going to have substantial return on my investment. Exercise, training, same thing. You want to just every day get a little bit of improvement, a little bit of improvement. So over those two, three years, we're thinking that long-term athletic development. Now these guys are, you know, 30, 40% better than when they started. So if you focus on performance first, I think you, there's too much risk involved. So for us, myself, like injury prevention, first and foremost, our guys stay healthy. They can continue to perform. You know what it's like playing yourself. Like if you have just something that's just slightly nagging, it's not an injury, but just nagging. It just takes your mind off the game. Now you're just kind of thinking, well, you're like, oh man, my hamstring just kind of bugs me. I, maybe I can't turn this way or it's hard for me to jump up into the play if you're a defenseman. And so we just, we just focus on that. So it comes down to do no harm. So if we're doing new, no harm to our guys, chances are they're not going to get, uh, get injured and they're going to be able to continue to perform at their best. When you're talking about do no harm, what, what kind of exercise are we talking about? Are we talking like isometric type stuff or what, 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 do you, what do you mean by that? And how does, what are some, maybe some examples of, of things that young players that are listening could do? Uh, well, I mean, a, a good exercise. And if you've gone to university or you're going to university, you're probably going to do a lot of it, especially depending on your school would be a hang clean. So if you watch the CrossFit games, um, they do power or hang cleans. Power cleans would be from the floor. Hang cleans are kind of from your knees. Great exercise. You develop really good strength. Um, you develop really, really good uh, power output. At the same time, it's a very complicated lift. It, it takes years to kind of master and, and do it safely. So while it's a really good exercise, if done incorrectly, you can hurt yourself. So now you look at it. So if I have a 14-year-old come in and we want to improve power. And I'm like, okay, hey, well, I know a, a, a hang clean is a good exercise to improve power. But I look at this kid, I'm like, there's no way he's able to perform this safely. Well, what else can we do to get the same outcome? Right? So our outcome is we want power development, but there's hundreds of different ways of getting that. So I would look at this 14 year old kid and be like, okay, well, I've tried to teach him this movement using a broomstick. So nothing that's going to hurt him, but he just doesn't understand the coordination of this lift. So rather than continue to waste time to teach him one method to get our power output, let's do something with a medicine ball. So it's much easier to learn. It's much easier to perform and there's less uh, risk involved with it. So that's what I would do. But getting back to, like you said, isometrics, start with good isometrics, start with a good foundation. 
these kids, they, they, once again, they want to jump into, oh, I saw Sidney Crosby do this. I want to do this because he's an awesome hockey player. Well, he is. But he also started by doing the basics, the boring, the monotony, uh, as you put it. And so if you have a really good foundation that we can build on top of that, the analogy I like to use with the kids is you're building uh, two different houses. One is going to be on a concrete foundation. The other one's going to be on a sand foundation. Which one's going to last longer? Well, it's pretty obvious that the one that on the concrete foundation will last longer. And so the isometrics, the boring stuff, the building good quality strength, that's that concrete foundation. And the bigger that slab is, the bigger house we can build on top of it. And so kids come in, I always start making sure they know how to control their body first. They can hold certain positions. They're strong enough to hold those positions. And then we can start thinking about power on top of that. Um, for myself, like goal number one, as you brought up, is like that injury prevention. And then goal number two is just improving their speed on the ice. And once again, there's a thousand different ways of doing that. For myself, if a kid is just more coordinated off the ice and they can transfer that coordination to on the ice so they can hold their stride position better and they can stride out to the side and they can not be like wobbly around on the ice as much, right? If they're a little bit more solid, they can produce more force into the ice. So without even focusing on power improvement off the ice, they're more powerful on the ice because they're able to apply more force into it because they're more stable. So we start there and then we build on top of that. Wonderful stuff. Love it. Uh, curious on all the research that you've done, all the data you've poured over through your career, through your education, maybe some of those that are your, your favorites and, and things that wowed you or things that you think everyone should know or just underrated. I think the biggest underrated stuff is the boring stuff. <laughs> it uh, just good quality strength. Um, the, the biggest thing that I have found over the years, and this is with myself as an athlete, I mean, I think I'm very fortunate to have played university hockey and also professional hockey and study what I now teach while playing at the university level and then implementing all this while playing at the professional level. Every offseason would be a science experiment on myself. Okay. This is what I just learned. Now I'm going to apply this and I'm going to see how I feel. You know, um, I think it was my second year pro. I was like, okay, I'm going to get really, really big and strong. So I think I went into camp at 244 and it's very lean. Like I was in 6'4, 6'5. So it was pretty big size, really, really strong in the gym. And you get to camp, you start moving around and you're like, well, I don't, I feel okay on the ice, but I don't feel like that great. And you're like, I feel decently strong on the ice, but not as strong as I should considering how strong I am off the ice. And uh, so then, you know, you go back to the drawing board the next year, like, okay, well, I spent a lot of time, energy, effort in the gym this off season, but my return on my investment wasn't as high as I expected. So you, you change it a little bit. And then you change it a little bit again the next year and you start to kind of add to your program by removing certain things. Because at the end of the day, we only have uh, so much time and so much energy to invest. And for a lot of people to financials, they only have so much money to invest in a program as well or hiring a coach like myself. 
So you want them to get the most return on their investment. So I guess the best research that I have found is just doing stuff that actually transfers to your strength on the ice. Because at the end of the day, we're hockey players. We need to be strong on the ice. We don't need to be strong in the gym. Well, those two can correlate. They don't always. So I look at powerlifters, for example. They're the strongest humans on the planet. But they've just learned how to be really good at squatting and deadlifting and benching. Yes, they are strong, but it's the technique component of those lifts that they've mastered. So for our guys, just because a kid can, let's say, trap our deadlift 400 pounds, doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to be strong or explosive on the ice. Are you able to transfer that strength of the trap bar to be explosive and strong on the ice? So for me, it's just finding those balances where we want to obviously be strong off the ice because it does help us. But if we focus too much of just being strong off the ice, now we become weightlifters and not hockey players. And then the, the most interesting research would be anything that um, it's called post-activation potentiation. So it's just how to improve your explosiveness. So you would do, let's say, a trap bar deadlift, and then you would do a squat jump immediately after. That will help your power production. Now, depending on how you do that, will determine the effectiveness of your post-activation potentiation. So the research that I've been looking into is kind of this window of opportunity. So if I go too heavy in a trap bar deadlift and then I try and jump immediately after, well, there's too much fatigue still in my system. So I'm not going to be able to jump as high. My jump is going to be um, negatively affected. If I go too light and wait too long, once again, I've missed out a window of opportunity. So it's just finding, I guess, the, the right um, adaptation for all of it. Uh, I kind of look at it like um, you're adding your seasonings to your food, so your salt and pepper. So your meat and potatoes of your meal. That's right, you got your meat and potatoes of your exercise program. And the, the salt and pepper is just the little extra. And that's like your all your fancy stuff. So your rate of force development, your post-activation potentiation, your, your, your all your plyometric jumping stuff. That's just like the little sprinkle stuff on top. Too much of that, your food tastes like like garbage. And not enough of it doesn't bring out the best uh, of your food. So that's kind of, I know, I don't know if I answered your question directly, but uh, there's so much information out there. So it's don't do too much, do the right amount. Well said. Um, and, and I did a little bit of science experiment on myself as well. One year I decided that I would lift super heavy the night prior. We had like a 8 a.m. practice. So get in the gym at like eight, finish by nine, nine 30 and just be lifting heavy on legs. And then in the morning do practice. And I would feel like absolute crap. Yeah. <laughs> but, but on the weekend I felt amazing. And yeah. I don't know, it sounds like it's similar concept there of going heavy, getting enough recovery. So it's not completely fatigued, kind of like tearing those fibers again and just putting it into like an explosive power. That was, that was the best I ever felt. It was the, basically my last season where I was doing that. Yeah. You got to have a little struggle during practice and then you're like, okay, don't worry. Tomorrow's going to be better. Um, the, the last couple of years uh, playing, well, yeah, my last like five years playing in Germany, um, pregame warm up, 
I would lift heavy. I would be like 90% of my max, 85% of my max. But instead of doing, let's say I could do it for five reps, I would do it for two or three reps. So I'm just stimulating the nervous system enough. So when I would get onto the ice, I would be more explosive. I'd have a little bit more uh, maybe aggression running to my system. Like you get all that adrenaline from, from lifting. Might not have helped with all my suspensions, but I definitely felt better on the ice by doing that. Um, and same thing, like I, I, I would have said to you, if you wouldn't have gone as, with as much volume the night before, you would have felt good in practice and even better in your game, right? It's not the intensity, so it's not how heavy you lift, which negatively affects you. It's how much volume of that are you doing. Excellent. And then uh, does that lead into active recovery? I, I know we hear about the NHL, uh, especially the Carolina Hurricanes and the postgame speeches. Rod's like, go see trainer, I forget his name, Joe, and yes. make sure you get your lift in. So I'm not sure. Is that, is that, I mean, they've just finished a game and they're going to go get a big workout in, uh, you know, what's the reasoning behind that and how does that lead into active recovery? So, it, uh, it comes down to, well, what is that post game lift? Um, so if you think active recovery and passive recovery, so passive, I think pretty self-explanatory, you just kind of sit around and do nothing. You're very passive active recovery. Now you're doing something. Um, so for me, I look at an active recovery as something very, very light, something low intensity, because you just played a hockey game. So you've, you know, you've broken down your muscle fibers, right? You've slightly teared them. It's okay. It's a good tear. So then when they rebuild, they rebuild bigger and stronger. Um, so if you do too much, well, then you continue to uh, tear them down. So you're not really going to get a recovery in. So two reasons why you'd lift after a game is um, scheduling, load management. So if they're playing Friday night and then they play again on Monday, well, lifting on Saturday doesn't give them enough time to recover for that Monday game. So then they lift Friday night. So they've done everything on Friday. They have all day Saturday. They have all day Sunday. And then they're ready to go for Monday that necessarily wouldn't be active recovery, but they would lift to help prepare them for Monday's game. Now, let's say they played on Sunday. Well, after the game on Friday, it would be a very light lift, something that would just kind of go through some ranges of motion. Um, you would improve flexibility, mobility, and then um, just kind of increase that blood flow to the area. So then you'd start to bring more nutrients to help the recovery process speed up. So it really depends on what they're doing after. Um, and that would be dependent on when their next game is. Fascinating. So should, should we be having our kids squat heavy or, you know, whatever, not heavy, heavy, but some moderate level right after the game. So finish the game and that that's the cool down rather than the old ice bath. Um, once again, I guess what's the age of the kids. Um, I'm not a big believer in, uh, squatting regardless um it, once again like not that it's overly complicated just too many people aren't able to do it safely uh if you are going to squat i would suggest a front squat uh just easier to uh to perform easier on the body and uh, you can't lift as much so then you have less compressing uh load on your spine uh, spine is kind of an important part of the body so we want to protect that as much as possible 
but uh, I don't think squatting heavy after would help with an active recovery. I think um, doing some good bodyweight squats, um, some banded stuff would help uh, that active recovery. But if you're looking to improve the strength, then yeah, doing something heavier would, uh, would kind of contribute towards that. Awesome. So we're, so we're clearly looking at, at getting some gains here. Uh, the key attribute to that, and probably the, the one that I see most underdeveloped uh, with a lot of the players that I'm coaching uh, would be nutrition. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on nutrition, uh, whether that be pre-workout or pre-game, you know, if you're doing anything during the game, like grab a banana between periods, uh, during a workout, uh, and then post. So your, your thoughts on nutrition and maybe some basic meals that the kids can put in their body rather than, uh, heading home to have a bowl of cereal. Yeah. Well, I, the kids I work with, um, they eat like little birds and, uh, it's just like shocking, like how little they eat. So I think first and foremost is like, just eat more food, like just eat it. Right. And most kids can get away with kind of eating anything and everything. You're going to have your few that you're going to have to be more consciously aware of avoiding certain foods just based on body type. But I think for the most part, kids should just eat food. They don't eat enough. Uh, and then once they're eating enough, now you're okay. Well, now what are you eating? Um, but like you said, like bananas are good. Me personally, I'd like to avoid fruit during competition. Um, too much fructose can cause um, some stomach issues. So kids might uh, feel some rumbling going on in their stomachs and then maybe have to use the washroom or bathroom, I guess, if you're in the States. <laughs> um, I think anything that doesn't sit too heavy in the stomach. So like there's, you know, there's so many good granola bars out there now. Um, I like cliff bars myself. I think they're good. You get uh, decent protein in there. You got uh, good sugars in there. So you're starting to supply the muscles with the nutrients they need to perform uh, at their best. Uh, yeah, anything that uh, doesn't sit heavy in the stomach, this is like jern or I'd say an hour to an hour and a half leading up to a game. And then around that, just eat tons and tons of food and simple at their like most basic form. So try to avoid boxed stuff. So like if you're going to have mashed potatoes, don't grab a box of mashed potatoes that just add water to, you know, boil, peel mash your own potatoes, um, good quality meat. So basic, you know, chicken, steak, uh, fish. Uh, once again, it becomes very boring. It's just basic stuff. And then just tons and tons of fruits and vegetables. Um, you can eat that stuff till you're, you're blue in the face. Um, for me, I just, I eat my favorite stuff because that's what I enjoy. So I would tell a kid, Hey, you know what? You're going to have to eat, you know, a bunch of like, red and green peppers. They're like, well, I only like the orange ones. No, no, you got to eat the red and green ones. They're the best. No, you're going to be like, okay, then eat the orange ones. <laughs> Do you like them? So eat them. Great. Or they're like, I only like cucumber. You're like, cucumber's not the best. There's just there's not a lot of substance to it. It's a lot of water. But if that's what you like, then yeah, eat that. And then maybe they eat enough cucumber and they're like, oh, you know, I don't mind vegetables. Maybe I'll try pepper now. So I think if you try and force kids to do stuff they don't want to do, they'll just reject it more. So you kind of find out, well, what do you like? Okay, well, let's just do a lot of that then, right? You kind of figure out, yeah, just what, what are they going to actually do? 
everything on paper looks really good, but what are they actually going to do? And they just, you know, just reinforce that. So for kids, like I only like apples and bananas. Okay, great. You're going to eat that. For me, I like berries, blackberries, blueberries, raspberries are my favorite. Mango, obviously mangoes are tough to get depending on season, but just if you like it, do it. If you like it and it's bad, then don't do it. But, um, or like if you like, I'll do like very basic food logs with my guys. Um, so I'll get them just fill out three to seven days worth of them eating. And then if I notice they're like every day, they're crushing like, you know, a box of Oreos. I'm like, okay, well, let's just, let's do half a box every other day. So you can still do it, but let's just try and reduce it a little bit. And so just try and change one thing can have a huge impact. And just once they change one habit, then it's easier to change two and three rather than try and change all five or 10 or whatever it is at once. I can relate to that. So in my, my real life, it's a financial advisor. And in that it's uh, the best budget is the one that you can actually stick to. Cause it yeah. all looks great on paper until you actually go and do it. So it's, I always joke the budget is like your diet. You know, the best one is the one you can actually stick to. So it, I, I love, exactly. I love to hear that. Is, is there any foods or obviously you talked about boxed things, but maybe some foods that sound good that maybe are not as good. I've, I've heard a few things about rice, how it kind of spikes your blood sugar, things like that. Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at all your carbohydrates, right? So you got your simple and complex carbohydrates and simple means it turns into sugars faster. Our body needs sugar, um, but your simple turns into sugar right away. So if you have white rice, well, now you're going to have more blood sugar uh, floating around immediately than if you were to have brown rice. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it is depending on the day. So if you just worked out and you want to start thinking recovery, well, you would want that white rice because you want that sugar spike right away because all that sugar will be sucked into the muscle. And when we exercise, our muscle burns sugar as fuel, which is called glycogen. And when we, so we just, you just had a hard practice, like coach bagged you, you guys sucked the day before. So there's no pucks on the ice. I think everyone knows what that one feels like. And so your legs are just like torched, like you can barely walk. So you'd want to go home and get some, you know, potatoes, white bread, white rice, white pasta, something that will spike your blood. And then your muscles are craving the stuff and they're going to suck that all in and they're going to start to recover and they're going to start to replenish their glycogen stores, their stored sugars. So that's a good thing. So now let's just say you're just, you didn't work out one day and you're going to go have a rice bowl at uh, your local favorite restaurant. Well, I get the brown rice because you don't want that spiked blood now. You want that, uh, that blood sugar to stay constant, to stay low, because if your body doesn't use the sugar, it's going to have to store it. So if it can't store it as glycogen in the muscles, option number two is stored fat. And we don't really want stored fat. So if we go with the white rice on a day we're not exercising, chances are it's going to be stored as fat. We go with the brown rice, it slowly breaks down, we slowly have blood sugar circulate in our bloodstream. And our body will slowly use that throughout the day. So now that balance at the end of the day is there, right? That input versus output equals out. And now we're happy. No stored fat, good. 
and our, we are able to use the sugars constantly throughout the day uh, for our energy. So there's, it's not that there's good and bad food. It's just that I think the timing of it can be good or bad. Got it. Glad you could break that down for us. I think that's a good rule of thumb. If, if you're working out hard, go white rice. If you're uh, chilling, doing maybe some passive recovery, we, we go with the brown rice. So yeah, simple. We, we like simple here because it's easy to remember and people actually stick to it. Like we said, best diet is the one you can stick to. Yeah. Well, I think, in, I mean, it can be very complicated and complex, but then you just get overwhelmed and you're like, I don't know what to do. And then you just resort back to what's easiest for you. So if it stays simple, you're like, oh yeah, I can follow that. Love it. Love it. So <clears throat> going, going slightly back, but we can, we can just kind of briefly touch on this. Uh, how, how do you prepare for and plan for your training during the season compared to the off season? Obviously off season, you're trying to gain in season more, basically trying to maintain that. Yeah. So let's start with off season first. So we'll kind of go through a scenario. So one of your players just finishes the season uh, end of April. So May 1 is their first day. Um, no more hockey. Give about a week just to kind of do whatever. Um, if you know they're an active kid by nature, then you can just say nothing to them. Just like, just, just do whatever you want. If you have a kid that is a little lazier by nature, just tell them to just, you know, be active, maybe go play tennis with a friend, go golf, you know, go for a bike ride with their buddies, just do something. Um, Cause you want to kind of get them away from anything that's structured. Then they come back to you, to the gym. And now I tell my guys, all right, look, we're like middle of May. Our season isn't until August. So we got half of May. We got all of June, all of July, all of August, realistically. And then half of May. So we're looking at like three and a half months of time to get stronger, get faster, and get more explosive. So we kind of plan out what their summer would look like. And I would tell them to stay off the ice at the start of that. Start to touch the ice maybe around June. And June would be very, very light. And then July, same thing, very light. And then August, they can start to get heavier on the ice. The problem with them... Uh, skating too much and then trying to get stronger and more explosive at the same time is those two things compete with each other because when they're skating it becomes more uh, endurance based even though it's like that short and hard on the ice it's just the recovery isn't there like you know what it's like playing yourself and then with the kids you work with when you're doing a drill the kid's going every like third fourth rep and it's just they constantly they're going they're going because you want a very high intense practice or training session on the ice. So they don't get much for rest. So it becomes almost a little bit more endurance based, even though it's still anaerobic by nature. And so when that's happening on the ice, and then we're trying to develop strength and power off the ice, they compete with each other. And the on ice stuff always wins, whether that's on ice or off ice sprinting. With, and I'm talking about like you're doing this with minimal recovery. So I tell my guys to stay off the ice so we can actually get some adaptation. We can actually get stronger. We make him put on a few pounds, right? Cause we work with youth athletes. These kids are trying like, I mean, some of the guys I work with are 150 pounds and they're like 16, 17 years old. They go off to play junior university. They're going against guys who are 200 pounds. Like that's a 
big swing in weight. And so, I mean, I was, I wasn't heavy until I was like 21 when I started actually training properly, but you know, I played 230, 235. Well, if someone came and tried to hit me in there 175, probably going to win that battle just because I have more mass. And so we're trying to get our kids without losing speed, without losing their agility. We're trying to get them a little bit heavier just so they have more weight behind them. So to simplify again, the first part of the off season, stay off the ice. You can still work on your stick handling, your garage. You can still work on your shooting if you have a net at your house or maybe there's a facility by your house that you can use, but just stay off the ice. Then as the summer goes through, you want to get on the ice, just work on simple stuff. Don't skate too much. Don't bag yourself too much. Just work on some simple stuff. And then as the summer progresses through and we start to get to July and August, well, now the on ice takes the front seat and the off ice kind of takes a back seat. So now the off ice is just supplementing the on ice. And um, as we get into the season, it's the same type of thing. Now it becomes like a load management. Okay, well, how many games are they playing? How much are they practicing? Um, do they look tired? Are they acting tired? Right? Are they are they a little agitated? Are they irritable? Are they not sleeping as well? You know, is is their their appetite changing? These are all signs of overreaching, and then overreaching can turn into overtraining, and then that's really really tough to get out of. So the in season training becomes just monitoring your players. And like there's questionnaires that uh, I'll give my guys. Um, but I, I find the easiest is just when they show up in the morning, just ask them, how are you feeling? You know, how was your sleep last night? How was the house practice? How was your game? Uh, you know, like we, the gym I work out at, there's some stairs. So like you walk up the stairs and I know personally myself, some days you walk up and like each leg feels like 300 pounds. And you're just like, Oh man, like it's tough to get up the stairs. And so I asked the guys, like, you know, like, how was your walk up the stairs? You know, they're like, oh, it was good. I felt really spring. You're like, all right, well, you feel good. You feel recovered so we can go hard today. If they're like, I just, I felt lethargic. And they might not use that word. They might just say tired, but. Yeah, you're fancy. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're like, oh, I just, you know, it was tough to like lift my feet or I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm dragging my feet. Okay, well, now we might have an active recovery day. We might just get on the bike and just go easy for, you know, 20 minutes. And then we might foam roll for another 30 minutes and do some light stretching. So that's an active recovery day for us. Uh, and that would be an in-season. That, that's a good in-season day because we're going to see some forward progression. The next day when they come back, they're going to be like, oh, I, I feel good today. I can get after it. Well, then we'll get after it. But if you try and get after it on a day they can't, now you're going to have two bad days and maybe three bad days. And so... The in-season comes down to just monitoring how you feel. If you feel really springy, well, then you can do some more stuff in the gym. Um, definitely stay away from doing a lot of volume in the gym because that's what will really fatigue you. So an off-season power day might be five sets of something. An in-season power day might be the exact same workout, but you do three sets of it or maybe only two sets of it. And then uh, just so you have monitoring yeah, rest, recovery, so uh, load management. How how are they feeling? Awesome, awesome stuff. So we'll, we'll pick up the skating as the season goes along. Um, and I know, I know you're big on finding ways to increase speed speed on the ice and in your skating stride. So uh, I know you put out a paper, I think it was, or just a long worded 
piece on uh, six steps to increase skating speed. So I'll I'll let you take that one away. Yeah. So if you break down someone's stride, there's, uh, at least in my eyes, there's lots of things that go into it. Like everyone just thinks, oh, if they're stronger, they're going to be faster. Strength is just a piece of that puzzle. Uh, Power, explosiveness is also a piece to that puzzle. So I think, okay, foundationally, where do we need to begin? Well, let's, let's begin with improving the length of their stride. So that is mobility. So if they're down and they can't get down deep enough in their stride, well, their stride length is going to be short. So if we can improve their stride length, now their blade is going to be in contact with the ice longer. They can continue to put more force in that ice, which will uh, propel them, move them up the ice uh, further with one stride. So work on your mobility hip flexors, your adductors, so groin area, um, your internal, external hip rotation. And then just like the depth of which you can get down in your stride. A lot of skating coaches will want you to sit in a chair, get down to 90. Uh, So basically, the better your knee bend, the longer your leg can be at full extension in your stride. So I think that'd be step number one. Step number two would be stability. So are you stable while you're down in that position? Or do you have a lot of movement while you're down in that position? Um, Big analogy, guys. So one of the things I'll tell my guys is when you stride, does does your body look like a flag in the wind? Are you going all over the map? Or are you nice and solid? So you slow down someone's stride one leg is not moving it's the anchor while the other leg is pushing out so if that anchor leg is moving like that flag in the wind well that's a lot of wasted energy so we're not going to be able to get up the ice as fast because our body's trying to go side to side as we're trying to go forwards so the stability of the non-pushing leg will help the striding leg so we have better mobility so that striding leg can get out further we have better stability, so now we can kind of push off that that leg better, so we have uh, a better anchor point. So those would be the first two things, and then I would say strength, and that strength stability are kind of the same thing, because the stronger we are, the more stable we can be. And then, but to so now if we go to, I guess true strength, we're okay. Well, can we actually? Uh, lift more weight. So uh, an exercise I really like, as I mentioned earlier, is a trap bar deadlift and then also a skater uh, squat. And that is a single leg exercise where your back leg is behind you and you literally just try and squat down one leg. So your, your back leg that's elevated behind you, the knee would touch the ground. Not an easy movement by any means, but if you can do that with your body weight, well, that's pretty impressive. And then we'll get our guys holding on to weight. Um, some of the junior guys we work with, they'll hold on to 40, 50 pounds in each hand. So now they have 100 pounds that they're holding on to, plus their body weight of, of 200 pounds. So they got, you know, 300 pounds that they're basically lifting minus the leg that's on the ground. So you're looking at like 30%. So it'll be around, you know, like a 270 pound, 250 pound single leg squat. That's really, really impressive. I'd rather see that than someone put on, you know, four or 500 pounds on their back and try and lift that one, the back squat of four or 500 pounds isn't as transferable to the ice. And it's much riskier than someone holding on to 50 pound dumbbells in each hand and using their own body weight. 
and the transferability of that strength of this the skater squad the leg squad is much higher so there's just way more benefit of doing that so just improving that and then once their strength is improved now we can start thinking okay how can we start to change that strength and applying it to improving our power so then power would be the next step right if we look at a pyramid we want that bottom base nice and big and wide and then we slowly work our way up so now we're at the power one so it's a little higher up that pyramid and so how quickly can we apply that that strength or that that force into the ground and um once that is improved and that can be box jumps that can be single leg jumps uh, hockey bounds so going from one leg to the other now there, there's many ways you can do it but once again we want to for us we want to do it as safely as possible and make sure that they're executing the drill properly. So then I'll use the word again, transferability to the ice is much higher. And then from there, just our speed and quickness. So those are two different things. Quickness is you and I are racing for the puck. Uh, we're both in front of the net. I'm the defenseman battling you in the forward. The puck is free in the corner, right? That's three, four strides at the most. Well, whoever's the quickest, we're there first. So just improving at how fast you can turn over the frequency of your strides, right? I, I might have good, long, powerful strides, but it just takes me a very long time to turn one stride over than the other. Well, I'm not very quick where you might not have long strides where your legs move like the road runner and they just go, go, go. Well, you're going to get to the corner before me. But if I can improve the quickness of my stride, but keep them still as long, I will then beat you there because your strides are too short where mine are longer and almost equally as quick. And then the last one would be speed, just overall speed. So now we're actually like chasing out a puck. So speed would be anything greater than like that 15, 20 meter distance. And so you with your quick strides, they turn over very, very fast. Well, if we're going, let's say 10 meters and you have to do 20 strides to skate 10 meters where I can do 10 strides to skate to 10 meters. So I'll beat you in 10 meters just because I don't have to move my legs as fast. I'm going to cover more ice with every stride. So that's more of that, that speed component. But it's uh, kind of finding that, that happy medium between quickness and long, powerful strides. Because if they're just too long and too powerful and they take too long to kind of turn over before you get your next stride out, that's not going to be good. And if they're just, just so fast, like you're almost running on the ice like Roadrunner, that's also not good. So you have to kind of find that balance uh, between the two. And so I think going through those six steps, so the mobility, the stability, improving the strength, the power, then the quickness and speed. Uh, I think that's how you improve someone's overall speed on the ice. Awesome stuff. Well, uh, we'll wrap it up here. I think we covered a lot of territory. Don't want to overwhelm anyone any, any further than we already have. Again, we're, we're all about simplicity so we can actually take away and use use what we're talking about. So uh, I'll, I'll give you two minutes. Uh, tell us about what you're doing, what you got going, maybe some of your programs and, and anything else you want to talk about. Uh, yeah, so right now it's a little bit, uh, I mean, obviously this is a special time for everyone in the world. And so our WHL guys are just starting up um, here in our BC division. The other provinces have been going for about a week. Uh, all our pro guys are going in NHL. 
So right now it's a little bit of a quiet time, which is nice. So you can kind of prepare uh, for hopefully a normal off season with our guys. And so it's just like figuring out the logistics. Okay, well, when are guys going to be done their season? Um, what should their first week, maybe two weeks look like, like when they are done, like the older guys would give them two, maybe three weeks just to kind of get a full recovery and then uh, get them back in the gym and just start that, that kind of questionnaire, whether it's actual physical, like here's a questionnaire, like fill it out or just that dialogue back and forth, get an idea of where they are mentally, physically, and then building their program out. Um, been doing it for, for a few years now. So it's, it's a little easier when someone comes in, like, okay, you might have it, like, okay, this is what they're going to do. All of a sudden you start having that conversation with them, realizing that this isn't the right plan for them to start. We got to adjust and start here. And then eventually we'll get to what we originally thought we were going to be able to do. And are you doing virtual programs as well? Yeah. So I work with uh, a lot of guys that are here in the summer with me and then they'll go off to their own junior team. I'll continue to work with them. And I got a, a handful of guys that I just work with remotely. And so it makes it a little trickier, but it's having a lot of that dialogue with them, seeing where they are um, to adjust their, their programming, but it, it works at um, for these guys that are in small remote cities that one might not actually have a trainer in town, or if they do have a trainer, they're just your general fitness trainer. They don't understand hockey to the to the same extent as myself or other hockey trainers and so it's it's huge benefit for them to to have those resources and it's it's big for me too to be able to just reach more more young athletes and and give back to to kids that want to get better and uh the ones that are dedicated so it's the remote stuff's fun for sure it's different but it's fun Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on. Really appreciate you taking the time and breaking down all this for us. No, no problem. I uh, appreciate being here and it's, uh, it's always nice to, to have these conversations. You don't get to have them all the time. And then, yeah, I mean, if one kid listens to this and he's like, wow, I know what to do now and he gets better then I think we've done our job. Awesome. Sounds great. Take care. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning into the hockey IQ podcast. We are Hockey's Arsenal, Greg Rivak and Dan Ducart. Together, we've come together to create a platform and a community to expand on hockey intelligence, hockey IQ, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we're very passionate about seeing this game played smarter and better and continue to develop itself uh, to the next level and staying on the cutting edge of things. So you can find us at Hockey's Arsenal on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We're also at Hockey'sArsenal.com. Uh, From there, you can find some resources and some options to work with us. We're excited to continue this. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, follow, and share. Uh, You can also join up for our newsletter as well, where we're going to tackle anything Hockey IQ related. So we're excited to have everyone here and continue to build. That concludes this week's episode. Thanks for joining us here at Hockey IQ. If you haven't already, take a quick moment to hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and drop a review. If you want to be a great teammate, even recommend us to a friend. You can follow us at Hockey's Arsenal on Twitter and Instagram. Check out the website, hockeysarsenal.com, where you can subscribe to the weekly newsletter. You won't regret it. Catch you Buttes here next week for a brand new episode.